Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an easy breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy with basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An easy breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own easy breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com today. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical bill expert, finding savings can seem impossible. Well, HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. So start saving with knowing where to look. Visit healthlock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. The left may hate guns, but they love putting gun right activists and their crosshairs even more. My next guest is a complete and total badass. She is also one of the nation's top conservative radio hosts, and she's also been on the receiving end of the left smears time and time again. This is The Truth with Lisa Booth. Welcome back to The Truth with Lisa Booth. I've got an exciting show for you guys this week. My guest is the one and only Dana Lash, a complete and total badass. She is also a nationally syndicated talk radio host who dominates the airwaves from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. each and every day. The Dana show has been so successful that she just inked a new multi-year deal with Radio America. She's an author and perhaps one of the most prominent and influential commentators in the country. But perhaps above all of that, she is a fierce advocate of the Second Amendment. With such a huge platform, Dana is constantly the subject of vicious and cruel attacks from the left, yet she doesn't let them stop her. Today, Dana and I discuss her life, the future of the country, and of course, guns. We dig into what Congress and the Biden administration has in store for you and how they're working to take away your Second Amendment rights. Dana, we were talking before we started getting rolling, and I was telling you that, uh, you know, I don't have a fancy studio, <laughs> that I'm I'm doing this in my, my closet, and you're telling me that that's how you got started as well from your closet. First off, it's good to be with you, and thank you so much for having me on your, on your awesome brand new podcast, and congrats on that. That's super cool. When I first started on radio, it was local radio, and so we, we had a radio studio, but when I moved to Texas until I built out a place in my house, I mean, I legit was like in a closet, and there was something very wayne's world-esque about it that i really liked because i kind of felt like i could do whatever i wanted to and nobody could stop me which you know ultimately i mean i really could have but um there was a certain i don't know there was like this rebellious aesthetic about it and then when i got into my studio studio i thought oh i lost a little bit of that wayne's world feel i don't know just there was something i that i liked about it there was something that was super authentic i mean not that it's not now but you you learn to kind of like reminisce and romanticize the, in the little closet days. But I think that's why I've always liked you is that there's like this rebellious spirit about you that, you know, you're just not like beholden to anyone. You speak for yourself. You know, you're just you're not going to back down to anyone. I recognize that in you as well. And I, I'm to that. I'm I'm like that almost to a fault. Actually, my husband would probably say to a fault. I mean, really, it's a, I am. It's so wrapped up in my American DNA to be so unbelievably opposed to authoritarianism and everything else that I 
just dig in and I will resist something all, sometimes out of just pure spite. And I've been like that since I was a little kid. I don't, I don't, it's never, it's not, I mean, sometimes it serves me well, sometimes it doesn't, but it's hard. It's hard to shake. No, I'm actually the same. Like my parents would say, I'm not married yet, but I'm sure my future husband would say, you know, it probably would say the same thing. I know my parents would say the same. I mean, I definitely, I always just, I've always bucked authority, but you know, sort of your DNA being opposed to this authoritarianism, but I, I really just feel it sweeping into our, our country and, and seeping into the bloodstream. And I, I actually, my, my last guest was Maximo Alvarez, who's a, a Cuban exile, and he was just talking about communism here in America. You know, from your perspective as someone who you know, believes in individual freedom and that's just in your DNA, what's sort of your broader picture on where we are today as a country? Well, your guest scared the living hell out of me because... Me too. I was like, oh my God, no! <laughs> it's like, I kind of get, like, honestly, because I was listening to that, uh, and I kind of got the same feeling that I got the first time I ever read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis because then I realized this is all the ways the devil can get us. And then I'm like, you know, listening to Maximo, and he's sitting here saying, well, you know, it's the... It's, I mean, look at every aspect of American society, how much Marxism has crept in. And I mean, really, ultimately, it is, I, I really do think it's like that. I even have, I'm going to put on a tinfoil hat for a minute and, and incorporate Marxism and something that I hate about pop culture, which is the little house phenomenon. Um, I will never have a little house out of pure spite, out of rebellion. Because I feel like it's like they're trying to condition you. I'm like, is this a Marxist conditioning? Because it's everywhere else. It's in academia. We're having a huge fight here in, in the town I live in with our school district. It's, I mean, you see it in the media. We don't even really, we don't have a free press anymore. We have a press that that is beholden to a political party, but we don't have a free press. And it even goes beyond the, the good taste of editorialism, some of the stuff that they're doing, like the Washington Post shutting down the Biden fact check after 100 days, because I guess, you know, there's no more times to fact check him now. The 100 days is up. But it's, and the it's dude's everywhere. been like the pr biggest prolific liar in like political history. And he's the Veruca Salt of presidents. I mean, I don't know any other president that's asked Congress for $6 trillion in just their first 100 days. And after what I'm calling the big pimpin' plan, which is the American, what is it, the American family plan, the giant, you know, hold your ankles tax plan that he's proposing. Uh, that's, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that has ever asked any president that's asked Congress for that much cash uh, in the first 100 days with zero offsets and offsets and spending too. So I, and, and people from everything from the virtue signaling with, with vaccines and masks and everything else, it really does. It just feels different. It just feels weird. And I, I, I really, when I was listening to your guest, I really came back to this, uh, this mantra that not everybody is built to be free. Not everybody wants freedom. I think there are some people, Lisa, that are so terrified of the responsibility and the risk that is associated with living free that they would rather have just a taste of freedom and then kind of live in, in that false security of the government's palm. And that's really what I think we've really seen that, especially with the pandemic. Well, and that's really concerned me as well. And and two, just the unquestioning nature of Americans today, you know, you've like they're basically just allowing the CDC to tell them that they no longer have to wear a mask outdoors, which is like most reasonable people arrived at that point at the beginning. <laughs> They're telling us to do what we sort of were already doing in the in the first place. And the shaming, this this public shaming that's going along with it as well, uh, where and I've seen I've even seen some conservatives do this. And I don't care if somebody wants to wear a mask or not. I mean, when I always joke because I'm such a germaphobe, it's my husband says it's like traveling with Michael Jackson whenever we would get on a plane, this is even pre-pandemic, because I have to wipe down the seats. I have to, I just, because I think people are gross. I mean, I, <laughs> I worked as a server. I, I was a waitress in high school. I mean, I know people. I mean, people can be nasty. And I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and touch a seatbelt that like somebody gross probably has touched. I'm not going to touch this air vent. So I wipe it down. And if my husband's not traveling with me and there's like somebody else that's sitting with me, tough luck because I got to wipe their stuff down too. I'm like, I can't be sitting. I'm sorry. You got to move. I got to wipe your stuff down. I can't have you touching this. I, I'm, it's a mess. But in, during flu season, I would have the face mask. Like I didn't have to go out and get all this stuff. I had all of the stuff in my pantry in the first place. <laughs> I didn't have to get any face masks or anything like that. I had all of it. And people used to think I was a freak, but I felt like Bane, like from Batman, when he was like, you merely adopted the darkness. I was born in it. I felt like that when all of this stuff hit. But 
Now, here's the funny thing, Lisa, and I know you'll identify with this. Being so resistant to authoritarianism, the moment everyone was like, oh, you got to wear a mask. I didn't want to wear them anymore. I wanted to burn them <laughs> off. It's so weird. That's hilarious. Well, and my thing is like, look, I, I don't care what anyone else does. Like, if this makes you feel safer, like, you know, be my guest. But like, mind your own damn business. Like, get off my lawn. Like, you know, don't you dare tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. Yeah. And and like the stuff with the vaccines, I, I'm not anti-vax. I'm not anti-vaccine. Like, I don't care about GMOs. I don't, I mean, I really don't care. I mean, there's, you know, I, I eat healthy. And, you know, I just pick the best looking banana when I go to the grocery store. You know, I don't I don't really I'm like, is this organic? I don't know. I'm just it looks nice. I want to have this one. But when people are trying to shame you for not for for I don't even know if I if, I don't know anybody that is super anti coronavirus vaccine. I think everyone's sort of in the same boat that I am and that we're a little hesitant to embrace something that was only cleared for emergency usage. Like if we didn't have this emergency authorization order from the White House, then this would not be administered. Nobody would be getting this stuff. And all of the side effects that, you know, people just, I just kind of want to wait and see, you know, and, and it's, it's not like, you know, the government hasn't given us any reason to not trust them or anything, right? I mean, people, <laughs> I think are, after the last four years that we all went through, with the Russian collusion in 2016, the media malpractice, so on and so forth. And then to have government uh, representatives, people like Fauci and others say, wear the mask, don't wear the mask. Pregnant women can get the vaccine. No, they can't. And kind of move the goalpost. The messaging has been disastrous. Kamala Harris going out and saying, well, you know, if Trump came out with a vaccine, I don't know that I would get it. That put a lot of question in people's heads because that did more than politicize it. I mean, she's questioning the the credibility and trustworthiness of something that, you know, that that a lot of people worked on. So I, I, I don't really think that all these people that are hesitant can be faulted or judged by others because of everything that I just mentioned, they have genuine reason to just want to get as much information as possible and be as informed as impossible before they inject a liquid into their body. And I think that that's perfectly reasonable. Well, yeah. And like for a virus that has a 0.15% fatality rate, which isn't significantly higher than the flu. So that's kind of my hesitant, especially for someone, you know, who like we're young, healthy. It's like, it, it just doesn't, you know, make sense for me. But do you think, you know, we're kind of talking this conversation about, you know, freedom and anti-authoritarianism and the overreach that we've been seeing. Is that why you're such a passionate defender of the Second Amendment? Like what what was how did how did that passion get started? You know, where's the genesis of that? It definitely is all wrapped up in that. I mean, when so I grew up Democrat, I grew up a Baptist Democrat. But not like the Democrats that you see today. It was a very different world. Although, you know, most of my family is now like the they're all now like the Democrats of today. But I was never against um, I was never against the Second Amendment. I never I mean, I, I just to me, it was, oh, it's you know, it's in our it's one of our natural rights. It's just, you know, beyond question. It was not anything that I questioned, you know, it and it wasn't until I got into politics as a young adult and I was in my 20s that it really became evident, especially when I first went on radio and we had all kinds of stuff when I lived in St. Louis that blew up. Um, this was really like right at the start of the Tea Party stuff when there was a guy named Kenneth Gladney who got beaten in the parking lot of a town hall. It was then Representative Russ Carnahan's town hall. And he got beaten up by these SEU the SEIU members uh, because they thought that he was a black Tea Partier. And he, I see, I've seen Kenneth Gladney before. He was a guy who used to sell whatever whatever event it was he would have pro merch that pro that merch like if it was an obama event it was pro obama stuff if it was a tea party event it was like gads and flags and the don't step on don't tread on me snakes it was all that yeah and he's he's a capitalist and they assumed because he was selling that stuff at a rally which actually was brilliant that he was a black tea party and so they these you know SEI, you guys beat him down in the parking lot it was on video and that's actually was like the first one of the first things that i went on fox to talk about and I, after that, it got real crazy. And I remember the uh, police chief there in St. Louis City was telling me, you're going to have to go get your concealed carry license. Now, I had rifles. I mean, I, I shot rifles and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But I had never really more than just like a handful of times fired a handgun. And I didn't even own a handgun. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to get very thoroughly familiar with pistols. And so that's what I did. And then went and got my concealed carry license. And it's really when you have to rely on something that you really value it. And 
uh, you know, I'm just uh, to know that I how long it takes for police to respond to stuff. I thought if I'm ever in a situation where, you know, my husband's traveling and I'm home with the kids or somebody decides to get froggy or something, I'm I want to be able to not worry about it. I don't want to have to constantly be fearful of of, you know, being at home by myself. We lived in the city at the time. Uh, because I think that somebody's going to do something as retribution, you know, for what I said on air or what I believe, and that's when I realized I don't, I don't like the, I don't like the feeling of helplessness. I don't like the feeling of outsourcing my security, and I'm such a control freak that I wanted to know absolutely everything possible. And I trained. I, that's when I we started taking classes and doing all kinds of stuff because I, I wanted to be as good or better than the people that would be responding to my call for help. And um, that's that's really ultimately what started it. And then to watch people try to talk other Americans and particularly women into disarming as like a show of virtue, that really angered me because I thought these people don't care about the safety of these these other women or these other citizens and their families. They they don't. I mean, they're not going to respond to a, you know if they call nine one one. These you know the activists, the gun control activists, aren't going to respond. So who's taking responsibility for these people's safety? And that just really started driving that whole push. I totally agree with you on that, Dana. Hold on just one second. We got to get to a commercial break, and then we'll get back to it. Imagine getting in a hot, stuffy car in the summer. You know how it cools off much faster when you roll down the windows first to get the hot air out? Well, that's exactly how an Easy Breathe basement ventilation system works. Removing all the musty, damp, stagnant air and replacing it with fresher, cleaner, drier air. Take charge of your air with Easy Breathe ventilation and get $250 off today. Ask about DIY kits. Visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com or call 866-822-7328. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right now, we're seeing first-time gun owners, you know, young, old, across the country are now pushing. We're seeing record levels of gun sales for first-time gun owners, I think, for the second year in a row now. Why do you think we're seeing that? Why do you think we're seeing such a big increase in gun ownership in America? Two things, the increased crime rate and a in an entire year, particularly all last summer, the visual of burning cities and people getting assaulted in the name of liberty or in the name of justice, which I think is weird to commit injustice to somehow like provoke and get justice. That doesn't make any sense. People saw that. And I think they also just realized that the tenor has changed. Uh, used to when when whenever there was like political disagreements, you know, it was something that was like not really. Um, y- if you were a dentist, you didn't have to you didn't have to worry about uh, you know anything that you did in your job, uh, you know, your life being ruined because you were you you engaged in wrong think or anything like that. And it used to be just kind of you know how it is. It used to be limited to like what you do, what I do. Like if you were in the political sphere, you know the nastiness kind of came along with it. But people who weren't in that industry never really had to worry about that. Well, now everybody's got to worry about it. You could be you know a cashier at a grocery store, and now you're involved in it too. I think that those uh, that sort of one part of it, and then obviously Democrats going out and saying, well, we're going to take the tax dollars that you voted on, and then to allocate towards police, and we're going to take that to do things that have nothing at all to do with, you know, protecting and serving the community. And when people hear that, okay, well, they're going to defund police or they're calling to do it. And some city councils were actually going through the motions and voting to do it. 
And then they see entire city blocks in Minneapolis burning, you know, federal courthouses and in Portland under attack. They see these crazy people trying to garden unsuccessfully at Chaz Chop and then, you know, a teenager gets killed. They see this. And and, and I mean, they even had this. There was there were even riots and property damage in, in Dallas, Texas. That really, you know, people then really think, OK, I need to be able to be my own first responder because their their cops are retiring faster than they can recruit them. So who knows who's going to if anyone is going to respond if I call 911. Well, that's the thing about the left right now is it's like, OK, so, you know, not only are they trying to curtail Second Amendment right in America, like we're already seeing the Biden administration moving on executive orders. Congress is likely going to try to move things forward. So we're already seeing, you know, action from the left. Well, Simultaneously, you're seeing these left wing cities, uh, you know, cut down police budgets and cities are becoming increasingly less safe. So it's like, do they just not want us to be safe? It's like, so like not they, they want to disarm you and then also make your city less safe. So it's like, OK, like what's what's the end goal here? No, that's a good point. And, and to that, they're always you also have activists that scream that the police, you know, systemic racism in policing uh, policing's unjust. Uh, you know, they called the last administration Hitler, and anyone who is still even remotely associated as Hitler. But also, those are the only people that should have guns. So it doesn't make sense. I mean, I can't reconcile that messed up logic. So which is it? I, those activists can't choose. That's actually a great point. And then you see two people like you know Maxine Waters. Uh, when she goes to Minneapolis, like they have security around them. So, you know, so the city or was it the city council? I'm trying to just off yeah. of memory alone. I think it maybe Minneapolis, like they had security. So it's like clearly like the concept yeah. of being able to protect yourself is something that these people understand. Yet they don't want the folks at home to be able to have the same level of protection. Like the, the Bloomberg groups, like the Moms Demand and all those groups, they hired private security. And they like to say that it's different from having police or themselves having firearms, but ultimately it's a form of class warfare. When you're telling average Americans that you don't trust them enough to be able to defend themselves and you're not going to allow them to have police, you're gonna defund their police so that no one's there to protect them. So what, they're just you know up a creek unless they can hire private security. I mean, that is, that is some of the classist, one of the most classist things I've ever heard of. And I, I and I wish that I that lawmakers would actually call that out a little bit more because it is. I mean, it's it, and that's exactly what the Bloomberg's of the world think and these anti-gun activists. I mean, they'll hire private security all day long. Well, you know, the regular people we can't afford the kind of detail that these people get, and we don't have that Bloomberg money. So it it really is. It's also a form of class warfare. But how do you think these false narratives get born? Because like even on the police debate, I was looking at the numbers from 2020 in the Washington Post. So of the 1,021 people that the police shot and killed, it's something like 44, almost 45 percent were white. Uh, the vast majority had a gun. It's over, you know, 60 percent had a handgun uh, that were shot and killed. Only 5 percent were unarmed. Yet, yet, you know, we we see this complete false narrative being born that somehow, you know, it's open season and unarmed, you know, black men in the country. And that's just not supported by the facts. So how do you think these narratives and why do you think these narratives get born and, and continue to get driven? What is it? Something to the effect of I, I think Heather McDonald had she'd written a piece. Oh, she's on, great. Oh, she's I love her stuff. Uh, her work is so good. She said that I think it's a, a police officers 18 more times likely to be killed uh, as opposed to a police officer killing an unarmed black suspect. And I mean, those statistics, and then when you look at the, the, the population sizes of different demographics in the United States, everything can't always be, well, it's because it's racist, it's racist. That's not to say that racism doesn't exist in society, but the argument that it's systemic even in policing just isn't supported by the facts. Now, I do believe in systemic racism. I believe in systemic racism in the Democrat Party. I believe in systemic racism in all of these Democrat cities that seem to be the only places that have these incidents. These Democrat mayors and Democrat police chiefs that that write the policing regulations and requirements, the Democrat city council that determine when use of force and it can be used for what, they're the people that craft the the uh, boundaries for policing in these areas. And it's always these areas that have these unfortunate tragic cases, or in some instance, the tragic response to a justified killing, because, you know, like the, the instance with Micaiah Bryant, you know, that officer did everything textbook. He stopped one woman from getting stabbed to death by another woman. So I do believe that 
with regards to policing, I do think that's when you see that systemic racism with the Democrat politicians that write the rules and call the shots. Well, it's also like you've got a lot of people profiting it. I mean, you've got the media likes, you know, they they want ratings. Right. So Mm -hmm. crisis sells. You've got Black Lives Matter leaders buying, you know, multimillion dollar homes and you have politicians that want to divide for votes. And so I, I think Americans really, really need to look at, you know, who profits off of all of this in one way or another. Oh, Lisa, that's such a great point. It's this cottage critical race theory industry and the by and large mansions movement where now, I mean, I don't know how you can be uh, a trained Marxist and, and celebrate Marxism, but yet engage in the capitalistic endeavor of purchasing private property. It makes zero sense to me, but you know, they're situational Marxists. No one's truly a Marxist. Everyone's a capitalist at heart. Um, but that, that, that them liking capitalism stops when uh, it ceases to benefit them personally any longer. But no, uh, to that point, I, have you? I, and I'm sure you've seen this, these speakers and these like presentations that have been given all around the country by all of these like anti-racist speakers, people like Ibram Kendi. And um, some, like, I think one, one, one guy that we had in our district was Dr. Adolph Brown, which is not a name that I can even make up. I mean, sometimes real life is too ridiculous. A little, little, too, little too close on the nose, right? Oh my gosh, right? Like Dr. Adolph Brown. And they give these presentations where they shame people. And it's, it's all about equity over equality. Equality is passe. The new thing is equity. And uh, systemic... Uh, injustice throughout the entire United States and how the Republic needs to be deconstructed and the entire country rebuilt. These people get thousands of dollars. That Dr. Adolph Brown, when he came to our school district, that dude got uh, something like $15,000 for a 90-minute presentation about how everything's awful and the country's horrible. I mean, this is a guy who's making $15,000 off a 90-minute presentation about how the country's bad. Only in America could that happen. It could not happen anywhere else. And there are so many, there's like a cottage industry of this now. And so many people are profiting. That's why I thought it was very interesting when, you know, some of these, some of these individuals that have been exploited by, by Black Lives Matter, for instance, have been calling them out and saying, okay, you guys are making a lot of money, millions of dollars. Where is that money going? It's not going to the communities that have been burned and looted. It's not going to the communities that really deserve it the most. It's not, I mean, I, it's, it's not going anywhere, any of those places. So, so what is this all about? And um, it's interesting because I don't really see, you know, the cable news cabal with the exception of one or two networks actually diving into that. Dana, we need to take a quick break. And then I, I want to hear all about that CNN town hall. Everyone at home, stay with us. Win the battle of your musty, damp basement with an Easy Breathe ventilation system. Take charge of your indoor air. It's easy. With basement ventilation to remove musty odors, pollutants, allergens, and airborne particles by 85%. An Easy Breathe ventilation system creates air exchanges for cleaner, fresher, healthy indoor air. And right now, get $250 off your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. Call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com today. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I want to talk about that town hall in 2018. For the folks at home who didn't watch it, just take us through 
I mean, it was you're basically set up like so the title of it was stand up students of uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas demand action. So clearly just in the name itself is sending a message. But sort of take the like listeners through sort of how that set up, uh, you know, was conducted and kind of what happened. That was a really hard uh, time because we, we didn't really know exactly what to expect with that event. I think um this was the week right after the Parkland massacre. And it was on, if I memory serves, that was on, it was on a Wednesday. I found out Tuesday uh, that I was, uh, they told me that I needed to go and that people were wanting there to be, you know, some sort of 2A representation. And they told me Tuesday that I was going to go. And when I boarded the plane uh, Wednesday, I, they said that I was going to be on stage, but I, th- I thought, you know, it's like a town hall format. So I assumed that it was, that the stage would be oriented the way that town halls usually are, where there's a bunch of people that are sitting up there and then there are, the, you know, one or two people in the middle speaking or the moderators in the middle. Then when I got there, I found out that I was going to be uh, not just on the stage, but on the stage speaking. And then it wasn't until I got into their, I guess, green room area that I found out that I was going to be on with Scott Israel, who was the, at the time, the, the very corrupt sheriff. And it was, um, it was something else. When we got there, it was at this arena and I, we were in this like one little, it was just myself and then uh, a colleague and my husband. And I, I knew I'm like, they're, they're putting me on with a sheriff. So I know immediately that I'm going to be the whipping boy on this. Uh, that he's going to, I know he's going to blame me. So I wanted to see how hard he was going to go at me. So I was going to introduce myself to him before we were on stage together. So I had that, I kept the door open. So I, everybody else had their door closed and I kept the door open because I wanted to see who was coming down the hallway. And I saw him come with some deputies and it was really interesting because those deputies, when they arrived with him, they weren't, they weren't walking with him. Like they weren't talking like, you know, normal coworkers. Uh, the two deputies spoke to each other, but they did not speak to Scott Israel. So I went out there and I introduced myself to Scott Israel. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I said, I'm Dana Lash, you know, I'm praying for your community. And he looked at me, he's like, oh yeah, you're the gun lady. And he's like, yeah, no hard feelings. And I thought, what oh a my God. out thing to say. Uh, yeah. That's like the ifs and buts were candy and nuts guy. You know, I'm like, what a thing to say. And I immediately knew it. I was like, yeah, he's going to be coming for me. So I went back into the, um, the green room and I told my husband, I'm like, it's going to be a brawl. It's going to be an absolute brawl. And, um, and, it, and it was, it was interesting because before we went out on stage, those two deputies came back and they basically confided that they did not like Scott Israel. Uh, they thought he was a horrible sheriff. And then they asked that they could get a picture. And I, it, it, as long as it, they wanted it, but they didn't want me to share anything on social media. And so I said, I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, it was even then there were cracks in the unity of the police department. But Lisa, they treated it like a WWE event. Uh, they had like they had music playing. Then they had Scott Israel and all of the Democrat politicians because Marco Rubio was there. Uh, but they didn't ask him to get up. They had only the Democrats get up and electioneer before the cameras were on and really get the audience going. And then when the cameras uh, came on, the lights dimmed and they played an in memoriam video. And it was, I mean, I was watching media manipulation live, a front row seat right in the middle of it. And they were trying to manipulate everybody's emotions. And I, when they had Marco Rubio out there and he um, is the one time that I, well, on immigration, but that's a whole other issue. Uh, I was critical of him when he was starting to compromise on universal background checks and that. And it's a difficult spot to be. It really is. And I know it's hard to pass judgment on people when you know you haven't been in that position. You're in the middle of an arena full of thousands of people and they're screaming at you and it's a very hostile environment. And so it's, you know, it's difficult. But when he started kind of folding on that, my husband looked at me and he was like, it just got that much harder for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, there's nothing that you can do in life that prepares you for this. J school does not prepare you for this. There's no political class, no poli sci class that's gonna get that's gonna get you ready for this, and it, it I mean, it was it was really um, it was something else. I mean, I I don't I I just when I get in these positions, I just kind of I shut off emotion and I'm just like, let's be very clinical about this. Somebody, there's got to be an adult in the room, and you know, before we even flew down, like I'm a very sassy person, obviously, and my biggest vice is my mouth. Um, but you know, I, I try to, you know, I'm, I'm a faithful person and I, I, I really try to, you know, improve myself. And I, I, I try to do 
uh, as best I can for the issues that I that I value as much as I do. And I mean, I I was on that flight and I legit prayed the entire way down because I'm like, I I mean, people know me. I'm I'm from the Ozarks. I I'm a brawler. This is oh my gosh! I'm like, why is this situation happening? And it it was um I think it was because the spectacle of it was so over the top, and I really viewed CNN at that moment as a real enemy. The way that they were manipulating people, and Lisa, the biggest point of it after we after they cued me to walk into Black Eyed Peas, let's get it started, and that is not even a joke. Um, it's disgusting. Sorry, it Keep... was, no, it was it yeah. was unbelievable. You're right. I was like, I'm like, are they? Is there going to be a beer guy that's like going to be in the stands? Like, it really, it was weird. It was so weird. And at one point, when I was sitting on stage, the thing that made the biggest impression on me, and I will never forget this. And this is why I lost it on stage at CPAC because those remarks the next morning were not scripted. Um, I watched as this mother got up and her daughter was one of those who had been killed. Mm. And she had this prepared statement and she had just been crying. And she was in such a fog of grief. It's, you could almost tell she didn't really know what she was, what, why, where she even was or what was happening. She was just in such anguish. And she was, she had someone next to her and she stood up. She just, and it wasn't a political statement or anything. And she was just remembering her daughter and talking about what happened. And I watched as one of this, as, as these, as this camera guy and this guy that was assisting him ran over there and then kind of like crouched down and kind of scooted over so that they could zoom right in her face and magnify her anguish and her pain and, and use that as like uh, to, to further manipulate people. And they they splashed her anguish all over televisions across America. And that I will never, ever be able to forget that. And that was the moment I've always disliked the media. But that was when I knew that I would never, ever be. I don't know if I could ever believe in a free press again after I saw that. I really don't think I can. Um, I really think it comes to the citizens balancing it out. That's the citizens have to make it free. They have to be the free press in a way like, you know, the militia. So. Uh, I had I had to fly immediately to DC after that event, and they did. They were yelling, "Burn her!" and they were screaming. And when all you this got stuff. someone, yet mm-hmm. said you're a murderer at one point. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. The last smiling face that I saw when I went on stage um, was one of the students there who works. Actually, I think he works in DC now. Uh, Jalen Martin. The last smiling face that I saw, and he was running up uh, when I was getting ready to go on that stage, and I thought he was going to throw something, and I was just like. All right, just take it. I mean, that's literally what I told myself. I mean, I had, there was a woman, I had a three person detail and there was a woman who was trying to get up on stage and get me and my security detail had to get her. And when I was going down the steps, exiting the stage, the steps, there were like metal stairs that you would roll up to the platform. Um, they were trying to pull those away and the security detail had to grab me. And I told my husband, I said, no matter what happens, you can't do anything. You have to choke back your reactive feelings you have to choke back that you're my husband you have to choke back all of this and you have to what happens has to happen and he did not like that because he had to sit next to ted deutsch and ted deutsch did not know that that was my husband sitting next to him all the horrible things that ted deutsch was saying when i was on stage and Mm. when i walked up there jalen martin was the only his like i said last smiling face that i saw and he ran up and I just kind of braced myself. And he was like, Mrs. Lash, he's like, they're going to take everything and you got to stop it. And I looked at him and I could not reconcile everything happening with, you know, his sweet smiling face. And he was wearing an Air Force shirt. And I remember kind of like stumbling out, like, you know, are, is someone in your family in Air Force? And he said, my big brother. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then it made sense. You know, I'm like, this is, you know, this is a family that's committed to service and they get it. And, you know, I thanked him and we keep in we keep in touch. And, um, but that, I think had I not seen Jalen, I don't know. It was just like a, it was just, it was like a little extra bit of, um, it was courage protein, a little extra bump. Um, and then, uh, to finish it out well, when I, I, we had to fly back to, or fly to DC because I had to speak early. It was like, I was before the vice president. So I had to be down there when lights came on and I was on maybe four hours of sleep and I had not had like an adrenaline dump or anything at that point that happened when I was on stage. No, you're, I bet you're exhausted uh, afterwards because coming under that kind of, you know, line of attack is exhausting. And, and I, when draining. I got up there, I had my little remarks, you know, 
And you know how, Lisa, how it is, you see the platform of media in the background. In the back, they're on that. Everybody's back there. It's, you know, CNN, MSNBC, everybody. And I saw the CNN logo. And that's when I just departed from my remarks. And I was like, you people. And I don't regret a single thing I said. Every syllable I said, I meant every last drop of that syllable still to this day. And they lost their minds over it. But it's true. I watched as they wrenched every drop of pain out of these people. I held no ill will for the people in this auditorium. They were people who were who were being used and abused by a legacy media that is supposed to report on their government for them. And that's, I, I, you know, and then what happened happened. Um, but that was that was unbelievable. It was um, nothing can prepare you for that, really. That's uh, that's insane. But I mean, it's 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 to be expected, though. Right. I mean, that's the way our media operates these days, particularly mm-hmm. CNN. But I, I feel like the, the conversation around guns seems to be one of the biggest places where there's just a lot of misinformation that is put out by the media. What do you think are the, the biggest misconceptions about gun owners in America that get pushed by the media and the left? I think the biggest misconception is that they're irresponsible people who are bloodthirsty. I don't know any other group of people who spend their days off or their weekends, really nice days. Like, you know, we had some real nice days in Texas recently. And we were, my husband and I were at the range. I don't know anybody who spends as much of their free time as they do practicing and honing a skill set with the hope of never having to use it. The only people I know who do that are law-abiding gun owners because they realize the significance of that piece of metal that they carry. And they know what it means and they know the responsibility that comes with it. There is something incredibly sobering. The first time that you take someone to the range, someone who's never fired a gun, or you're in your backyard or outdoor range or wherever, and they fire a gun for the first time. Every myth is is just is gone. Every myth, every you know misconception, every perception is gone, and it's a very sobering thing. And when you get your license to your to carry, and you go through you know before then you go through all the legal aspects of it, and um, it is, you realize how serious it is. And so people, when faced with that level of responsibility, they make sure that they have every skill set possible to be able to, um, you know, if heaven forbid, they had to, you know, exercise that right and defend themselves. They want to make sure that they're equipped with every bit of skill that they, that they have to do it. I, I, there is not a single person, Lisa, that I know who got their license to care or their, their concealed handgun license and then said, okay, that's it. I don't need to practice anymore. I mean, my husband and I are at the range at, when we're not gone for like a week traveling. We're at the range like every week. Um, and then when it's nice enough, I like to go and do drills at outdoor ranges that I can't do at indoor ranges uh, and, and and run through all of that. And I, I don't know anybody who doesn't do that. I mean, my, we've taken night courses to, to make sure that we're able to be as good and accurate if we're using like tack lights and, you know, we got, you know, we're, we're holding a pistol in one hand and a tack light in the other hand. I mean, we've, I carry, you know, in the event that, you know, heaven forbid that um, there's something awful happens and, and I'm called to defend myself from my loved ones. I mean, people, they take, they take medical kits. They just, just in the event, because they, that responsibility weighs on our shoulders so much. And I don't know anybody else that does that. I don't know any other group that works so hard to get so good at something that they never have to put into action, except for lawful gun owners. And I think that is the biggest misconception that the media pushes. What I feel like another thing we see a lot on the left is they, they seem to really hate conservative women. You know, so they, they say that they, you know, they purport to be about women's rights. They purport to be supportive of strong women. But like even just looking at your story, so like you dropped out of college to, to raise your first son but and then you go on to be on 200 stations broadcast nationally syndicated show 200 stations i uh, i mean you've made such a massive name for yourself you're such a success you think that you would be someone where they would be like yeah like this woman has done something with her life uh and at least you know respect the fact that you've grown you know you've grown your radio show and you've grown a name for yourself i mean that's not an easy thing to do Definitely not. And, you know, when I when I first started out into this, because I I was raised for a good portion of my life by a single mom and we were broke as a joke when when I was a kid, like we were we were I was I was a poor kid. 
Uh, but I wasn't an unhappy kid. You know, I had, a, I had, a, I had, even with everything that went on in my life, I still think that I had, a, you know, I had a good childhood. And when, um, you know, I went to college and I was actually studying print journalism and now it's all digital. Everything's digital. It's like a one-stop shop. But I used to think that I used to actually be ashamed of the fact that I, you know, never went and got my bachelor's. I used to, you know, be ashamed of the fact that, oh, I didn't go to an Ivy League school or, you know, because I, I, I would have gone to law school had I gotten enough scholarships, scholarships to afford it. I got scholarships to school, but, you know, law school, something different entirely. And I used to I used to feel ashamed of that and less than because of that. And then I realized, you know, I, our society, we used to love autodiadics. We used to love people who could, who could educate and they love knowledge and they love to expand their understanding of things by themselves without having to be fed information or guided by any kind of authority figure or, you know, a, a you know, whether it's a professor in college or whatever. And I think that that was one of the, I think that's one of the avenues, you know, when we were talking about Marxism earlier to get people to stop being self-reliant and to think that everything that means anything has to be sanctioned by a higher entity. It has to be sanctioned by government. It has to be sanctioned by this particular type of university. Community college is good enough. And, and I just reject that outright. I mean, there are some of the most successful people in this country. If you look at Steve Jobs, if you look at Elon Musk, if you look at Bill, if you look at a lot of these people, um, you know, they're autodidacts. They, they, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, there's, there's no shame in being self-taught and self-learned. In fact, it's kind of like wrapped up into the, you know, the American experience. That's, you know, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, our founders were, were kind of known for. And then they go off and create something great. And I love the fact that in this country, there isn't one particular formula for greatness. I love that because it talks, I mean, that just is a testament to the diversity of talent, the diversity of skill, the diversity of potential, and the diversity of opportunity that people can grab and go on and make something of nothing. And really, I think that is so uniquely American and we should be proud of that. And so, like I said, I used to be ashamed of it. And I'm not anymore. It is what it is. I'm happy. I'm successful. I don't have debt. So, you know, I'm, I feel good. I think we put way too much emphasis on college. I mean, I was a political yeah. science major. I still don't really even know what that is. It's like, what's the, you know what I mean? I mean, sorry to my parents, but it's like, you know, I, I think we put way too much of an emphasis. And that was beautifully said. So I, I originally reached out to you because I, you know, I've always been a fan of yours. I just think you're awesome and, you know, so smart and just such a badass which is so needed these days, but it was your article. There's an article in Axios about sort of who might take the mantle of the late Rush Limbaugh. And your quote was just incredible. It said, I like the competition and I'm the only woman that's doing it. Out of all of these dudes, I still feel like I have the biggest cigar, so to speak. So I saw that and I reached out to you and I was like, I have to have you on my show. But you just signed a multi-year deal with Radio America. You know, tell us about that. I, I, I'm sure people already know where to find you, but where can they listen and tell us more about this deal that you just signed? Yeah, at BaldanaLash.com. And that's that's the kind of the catch-all sort of website. I do a, a newsletter over at Substack that I send out multiple times a week. And then stations across the country, uh, the archive of the show is also the podcast of it. So if they missed it live, they can they can go and listen to it uh, through whatever whatever they used to listen to podcasts. But um, I you know I love radio and I have a lot of friends in radio. And I, I always thought it was funny whenever people were asking questions about this because they would ask me like, oh, so-and-so, uh, you know, your, your friend, you know, and they would you know, mention, I don't know, a number of different names to me. And, and, and I, you know, they, they were always shocked that um, it doesn't, you know, I, I, I think that competition and so many choices benefits the people who are seeking out, whether it's, you know, they're looking for commentary or they're, you know, how, whatever they're looking for. Um, I think that's beneficial. I mean, isn't that also part of the American experience that, you know, we have this many choices and, and I love that. And I, you know, I tell this to these reporters and they just don't understand. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's just, it's, just, it's, it's like, you, you no, I'm like, I, I love friendly competition. And in fact, you know, I think I would be a worse broadcaster without it. Um, I really, you know, it's like when I, when I see my friends doing well, I'm like, I'm really proud of them. And at the same time, I have no shame in admitting, you know, I wish I could do that. And it drives me to be better. And I'm grateful for that because I think that having all those people 
you know, we all make each other better. And, and that's a great thing. And it's something that some of these reporters could not understand. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, 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 I like working with the guys at Radio America and, uh, I love, I love doing what I do. Radio is so fun. I mean, there's, there's so much theater of the mind that you can do. I actually like radio better than television. Um, it's just, there's, it's just so fun. And it does feel like you're having a very intimate conversation with people because there's nothing but you and the mic. And that's, there's something magical about that. Well, and there, your broadcast on nearly 200 stations. I mean, did you ever like looking back on young Dana, you know, Ooh. I'm sure it's pretty heady to be in the situation you are and to have, you know, sort of reached the level of success you have. It's well, and I thank you for that. I, there, and there are a lot of people on the way that have, have been so helpful and, you know, I wouldn't be able to do any of this if I you know, didn't have my husband who, he was the one who encouraged me actually to get in radio. Oh my gosh, I hated it. I hated it with the burning passion of a thousand sons because I had always written. And uh, I did a newspaper column and there was, you know, controversy because it involved Second Amendment and keeping guns in the home. And I ended up on a uh, morning program on radio in St. Louis. And they asked if I would consider doing uh, after some some guest call ins, if I would consider doing a Sunday night show. And I thought they were nuts. So I told them no for like six months. And my husband's like, "Okay." come on, Chris is like, just, just consider it, just do it for, you know, like, like a couple weeks and see if you liked it. Well, I did it for a couple weeks and I hated it. I was, I, I tried to script out my whole show. I'm like, this is awful. I hate this. I'm not a radio person. And he was like, just stick with it. Just two more weeks. And then I kind of was like, all right, you know, it, cause it really does feel like you're talking to people and that you're, you know, you're sitting there with them. I mean, it, it's weird. And that's how it ultimately started. And I never would have thought uh, 10 years ago, even even more so if you said like oh you're gonna your your career is gonna be in in broadcasting i would have thought that was you know really 20 years ago i would have thought that's the craziest thing i've ever heard and i would have laughed and that would have been the end of it but you know it's uh it never amazes me where the path can take you sometimes <laughs> that is kind of crazy about life it's like you know we always have our sort of preset ideas about what the future holds and then inevitably mm -hmm. find ourselves in you know a completely different arena right yeah yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's exactly it. And it's a lot of fun and you just got to be open to it. And I, I just, now I'm, I'm finally kind of learning like, all right, I'm not going to fight it anymore. Where do I go next? Let's see, here we go. Um, but it's, um, I, I do enjoy it and there, and I work with some really great people that make it even more enjoyable, especially the days when it's a little bit much. Um, but as you know, so it's good to have good people with you. Any advice to young women who look up to you and, and maybe want to try to follow a similar career path? Never be ashamed of who you are. Be authentic. Don't be afraid to be to be feminine. And, and I don't mean that in like a stereotypical way. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't think don't be afraid to, you know, open yourself up. And and don't be afraid um, of, of, of and I, I realize some people are afraid, I think of often not of authenticity, not for shallow purposes, because they think that it makes them vulnerable and it opens them up to maybe smears or something like that. And just don't worry about that because people are attracted to genuineness. And if you are able to sit down and tell a good story, people will be drawn to that. A great message. And I, and I agree. I mean, I think, and I think too, in our business, people can really sort of, for whatever reason, really see you, you know, so clearly. And so if you try to be something you're not, people sort of catch wind of it, you know, so you yeah. really just have to be yourself and own it but so i've been trying to in these podcasts lately because you know the world's pretty heavy as a conservative right now right mm -hmm. you know it's 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 a pretty scary place uh, i know a lot of people who are listening have a lot of concerns about the future you know leave us with some optimism about you know where you see the future going or, or just leave us i've been trying to end with a little bit of optimism and some hope for america i was cracking up over this um the other night because i was writing this piece and prepping for radio uh, concerning this this case that's going to be going before the Supreme Court this fall about uh, Second Amendment, New York Rifle and Pistol Association. And so I was doing research on uh, everything that had to do with regulation of militias, because I was curious who actually came up with like some of their early plans and practices, standards and practices for militias. And I ended up finding uh, a bunch of, uh, reading a bunch of letters. I've read every George Washington biography I think that there is. And I came across a collection of letters like this was in the very early days. And he was writing letters to uh, this letter to John Hancock. And I hadn't read this one yet. And it was it was actually it was so funny because he was he was bitching and moaning. Washington was in this letter 
because the colonists who formed the militias, and they did all of this without permission of Continental Congress, they just did it because they need, it needed to be done. He could, they were so incorrigible and so independent that it was difficult for Washington to actually get them to form an army so that we could actually take on the Redcoats. And there was something about that that I just, it just cracked me up. And so I, I was, you know, thinking about this today with some of these, you know, the headlines and talking about the school battles and the encroaching Marxism. No matter how bad it gets, I think that there, too many people have tasted freedom. Too many people love the thrill of independence and they love that thrill of liberty and they love seeing what they can accomplish on their own. And no matter how much Marxism is implemented or how much, how hard they try to push, you will never, ever, once someone tastes freedom, just a taste, there's no going back. That's it. And that's that, that create, that's that animating spirit of liberty and I was thinking about all of this, you know, here they had all the odds against them. And you had these incorrigible, cranky colonists who brought their own guns and they had to, to enlist. And, you know, Washington, George Washington, he was struggling and asking for advice and how he's going to be able to get these guys to form one entity. And I don't know, that just, I just love that. And I think that that, that spirit absolutely still is, exists and is at the core of who we are as Americans today. So I hope that people can take something from that. I love that. And actually, I'm glad you brought up the Supreme Court case because I wanted to ask you that. But we started talking about other things and I forgot. But I do want to get your take. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I know I kind of said that was the last question, but I'm sorry. So no, so they're taking. The <laughs> yeah, Good. I'm like, wait, I wanted to ask you about that. So they're examining a New York law barring people from carrying guns outside of their homes. You know, are you optimistic about the potential outcome or, or where do you think that goes? I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic because I'm I'm such a cynic. And I know that there have been a lot of Second Amendment cases that I think what's been 13 years since Heller and the Supreme Court really hasn't heard a big, which could, this could be a landmark Second Amendment case too. And I know in some of the lower courts, it hasn't been, you know, completely kittens and sunshine for uh, Second Amendment rights. Uh, the thing that, that, uh, what, that I kept centering on was the question that was presented because they went from they went from determining whether or not the government could deprive ordinary law-abiding citizens of the right to possess and carry a handgun outside the home. That was the question presented in December 2020 to the way that it that it's a limited cert that was granted. The way that they set it in uh, with the Supreme Court uh, announcement is whether the state's denial of a petitioner's application for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. Because New York was saying you got to you got to have proper cause and, and prove it to us. Like if you're if you're if you're saying self-defense, you got to prove it. What, what do you mean you need it for self-defense? And so I'm wondering if this is just going to be an end of May issue. So it's it's going to be shell issue from, you know, I don't think it's going to go so far as to like nationalize constitutional carry or anything like that. But um, the way that the question was modified, I thought was very interesting because it was it was a lot more narrowed in scope. But maybe um, maybe that's for a reason. You know, I, I I always come at these Supreme Court decisions forgetting that, you know, we've, and I don't know why I don't mean to, uh, that we have Amy Coney Barrett. And I think my perspective has always been, oh my gosh, we have that John Roberts we got to worry about. How are we, how is this going to, but now that she's been, you know, she's been sworn into the black robe, so to speak. Um, I don't, I don't think that we have to worry about that as much. So I, I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic. And I know that people like Clarence Thomas, especially when he was blasting the court for not taking up Johnson v. Alabama and treating the Second Amendment as this disfavored right. I know that they, they had Heller and that was about to keep. And the New York Rifle and Pistol Association v. Corlett could be that that's going to affirm and bear. So you're going to have those those compliments, that full thing there that will be determined. So I'm cautiously optimistic. So that's good. So we will end on two optimistic notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so there, there is there is, <laughs> there is hope for the future, people. We will we will keep fighting. And I know you will. And Dana, it was so awesome to talk to you. I really appreciate you making the time. And uh, this was you're, so fun. Yeah, this is really fantastic fun. Fantastic hostess. So well, this is great. So are you. And, and I'm a huge fan. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was a pleasure. And anytime I'll take the time. We need to go grab a drink next time yes. we're in the same cities. <laughs> Absolutely. Or drinks, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I like the plural. I like the plural of that word. So I'm good. Exactly. With that. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dana. I appreciate of it. Of course. Thank you so much. Thank and you. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous.
I want to thank Dana Lash again for such an awesome interview. So much fun getting to know her a little bit better and talking about her life and her career. She's, again, such a badass. I have so much respect for her. And again, I want to thank you guys at home for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, if you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Lisa Marie Booth. I want to thank our team, producer John Cassio, writer Aaron Kliegman, researcher Margaret Smith, and our executive producers, Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, who are all part of the Gingrich 360 network and team. Imagine getting in a hot, stuffy car in the summer. You know how it cools off much faster when you roll down the windows first to get the hot air out? Well, that's exactly how an Easy Breathe basement ventilation system works. Removing all the musty, damp, stagnant air and replacing it with fresher, cleaner, drier air. Take charge of your air with Easy Breathe ventilation and get $250 off today. Ask about DIY kits. Visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com or call 866-822-7328. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.